Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today God speaks to us from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21, and verse 24. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the word of the Lord. If I were to compile all the various storylines of most horror movies, uh, I'm going to venture to guess it would be safe to say that the top storyline related to horror movies would be that of the spiritual, demons, ghosts, that kind of thing, because we are really intrigued by the supernatural, aren't we? This idea that there is a power or there's some kind of experience that sits outside of our conceptions of time and space uh, often leaves us with this sense of wonder and this sense of awe. And so we make movies, uh, more often than not, about malevolent forces working against us, hoping that there are benevolent forces uh, to work for us because we're so intrigued by the idea of a spiritual battle. Now, the Bible actually has a lot to say, as you could imagine, about the spiritual and even about spiritual battles. Uh, It should be no surprise to anyone that Christianity recognizes that there are both malevolent and benevolent forces out there. But there's often a confusion that comes when we try to understand how the spiritual intersects with and interacts with the regular rhythms of our everyday lives. Because so often when we think about the spiritual, we tend to think about the spiritual in these grand kind of ways. And though it is grand, there are ways that it is interacting with our lives every day. And we are often wondering and left in confusion the extent to which this spiritual battle is happening and what our role in that spiritual battle actually is. Now today we uh, continue, if you've been with us, we continue uh, our series called The Fruit which has been a really summer-long, slow walk through uh, Galatians 5. And over the course of the summer, we're going to be considering what it means to grow in Christian character. Uh, We've been looking at several things over the last few weeks, uh, and next week we're going to begin looking at the actual fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5. But for one more week, I want to give another bit of a foundation for how we can begin to see the fruit of the Spirit grow in our lives. Uh, And I want to take a look at the spiritual battle that is waging, that is happening in the midst of our pursuits of growth, of Christian growth. In fact, it's fair to say that there is no Christian growth. There's no growing in the Christian faith 
unless one first acknowledges that there is a spiritual battle necessary to see that fruit come. And more importantly, the necessity of trusting the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who makes this fruit grow, trusting that he is the one at work for us. And so to understand what all of that means and what that looks like practically in our lives, uh, I want to take a look at this, this battle that's being waged and why we need to fight it. And I want to do so by looking at our passage and then also some other passages in the Bible. But this is how I want to look at it. I want to look at this spiritual battle as a walk, that it's something that we are walking through. And so let's look at it through this, these categories, walking with the world, walking with the flesh, and walking with the spirit. All right, let's see how all of that, all of that contributes to spiritual warfare. Uh, so first, walking with the world. Uh, in the Bible, we're often told about the tensions and the battles that are going on, that the tensions and the battles that exist between us and the world, between us and the flesh. In our passage, Paul speaks much about a battle happening uh, with the flesh, and we're going to look at that more fully in a moment. But I also want to consider how the Bible speaks of the quote-unquote world, because there is a sp spiritual battle related to how we interact with the world. Let me explain what I mean. So in Romans 12, uh, Paul famously tells us that we are not to be conformed to this world, to the patterns of this world. In Titus 2, uh, we're told that we are to resist worldly passions. In uh, 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, in uh, 1 John 2, the Apostle John tells us, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, uh, love for the Father is not in them. Right, what is that? What is the world that we must resist? Well, not always, but often when the Bible speaks of, quote unquote, the world like this, it's referring to the customs and the expectations and the beliefs that shape our culture and our patterns in life. It's important to note that uh, from the biblical perspective, culture itself is not bad, but in most, if not all cultures, because of the reason why it's not all bad is because in most cultures, the image of God is being reflected in those cultures, right? Where there are people, where there are image bearers of God, there is some kind of reflection of God. However, because of the fallenness of humanity, all cultures are also fallen, and all are prone to waywardness that can and does lead people astray from the purposes of God. And in the words of Romans 12, there is a pattern of the world, a pattern to which Christians are called to not conform, to resist. And so it's important just to note that world does not reference the physical world, but rather it's the age in which we live. It's the time in which we live. It's an age that John 12 and Ephesians 2 and 2 Corinthians 4 say is ruled by forces of darkness, forces of evil, Satan himself. One theologian put it like this. So the fallen creatures of this present evil age seek to exalt themselves and live independently from God. So when scripture sets the world over and against the Lord, it has in, in mind not the created order in itself, but the ways of the world and the people in creation that are wholly opposed to the creator. In other words, the world is this distinction that the Bible makes between the goodness of God in creation and the way that good creation is fallen and as a result veers away from God's intentions. 
So it's important to, to know this, that resisting the, the pattern of this world is to acknowledge that every culture and every general pattern of humanity is fallen. Every culture and every institution and every government and every system and every structure is broken. It's fallen and is inclined to veer away from the goodness of God because it's established by or it's led by sinful humanity in an age where the forces of darkness rule. And until Christ comes, we will never be able to, be, to fully embrace or trust that the pattern of any culture or institution or government or system or structure is, we can never trust that it's pushing us toward God, but rather the world, all these systems and structures are pulling us away. And Christians are called to resist that conformity, to resist that pulling away. Now, this entire, this idea of you know, systems and structures and institutions being broken, it really is kind of a, um, a topic for another day. But let it suffice to say that right now we actually live in a time where there's actually a lot of talk about the goodness or the evil of systems and structures and culture and institutions. And as a result, there's a lot of debate about really big philosophical ideas, about the nature of epistemology, which is the source of our knowledge. It's, there's a lot of debates around ontology, which is the source of our being, of our nature. And there's a lot of debates around why there is this pervasive, these pervasive issues of injustice and inequity and strife in the world. There's a lot of very esoteric debates that really have, we, can be very difficult to try to understand what people are talking about when they talk about systems and when they talk about structures and when we talk about how we know what is good, right, and true and what we should base our lives on. If you want to find those debates, just Google them and there's lots of YouTube videos that we can get lost in. But some would say out there that all culture and ideas, right, so the things that we see out in the world, all culture and ideas, uh, that they're really just attempts uh, to define what is really only rooted in the material world. Meaning, you can look out into the world and you can see all that's there and there's really no good or bad, evil or not evil. It's all just material. And so as a result, as we look out in the world, we just kind of build up what we think might be best for ourselves. And so the best way to understand what's going on out in the world is to just you know, look at it scientifically, look at the interconnectedness of the material world. There's really nothing transcendent about it because the consequence of that kind of idea is that there's no need for God. There's no belief in the transcendent or the spiritual. There's really no sense of any kind of absolute. There's no ca a category for the fallenness or the sinfulness uh, that is a part of this creation that we experience, of the world in which we live. There's, there's just these systems and structures that have been developed solely as a result of naturalistic means. And if you go out to listen to a lot of these debates, like this is one of the fundamental flaws of streams of Marxist ideologies or the psychoanalytic ideas of people like Freud. They root everything in what is tangible, the material world. There's no way to point to any kind of objective truth. Rather, they're just always looking at what's tangible. The problem with doing that, the problem with approaching things solely from this materialistic kind of perspective is that one, it's just, it's completely incompatible with the biblical teaching that though we should analyze things that are out in the world, we're not solely a material world. Instead of rooting knowledge and being in pursuits of culture in the material world, instead there is this transcendent source 
of knowledge. There's this transcendent understanding of being. There's a transcendent idea of what ought to be present in this world and in our cultures. God has created the cosmos with order and with intention. He is the source of all knowledge and our being. He is the absolute truth and is the orienting factor in all of what is true. No truth and no knowledge or no understanding of the universe can be fully understood unless it's rooted in his creative purposes. And yet because of sin, we as humanity have veered away from those creative purposes. As a result, all of creation has fallen and now all the things that we look at in the world, all the patterns and structures and systems, they're broken and they misalign with God's transcendent purpose. Now, why do I say all of that? Because there are practical implications for us in this day and age. You know, when we speak about the brokenness of systems and structures in the world, when one speaks of things like systemic injustice, when one speaks of pursuits of social justice, when one speaks of the inadequacies of our governments, when one speaks, of, uh, speaks with cynicism about institutions that we have in this world, we're not talking about systems and structures in the way that maybe materialists do. We are talking about what the Bible calls the world and the patterns of this world. They misalign with God's creative purposes and it's impacted everything. It's a recognition that because sinful fallen creatures create governments and economic systems and cultures that each will have in its very assumptions things that are pulling us away from God's purposes. And those things we must resist. And so there's a spiritual awakening, a spiritual battle for truth that's taking place. Truth that resists the patterns of this world. All right, so that's the world. But there's a different way that the Bible talks about the spiritual warfare that exists. And it speaks of not just what it means to uh, exist in the world and not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but also talks about the flesh and what it means to walk in the flesh as opposed to walking in the spirit. So let's understand what that means. Uh, in our passage, Paul speaks of the flesh as being opposed to how one ought to live. All right, so he says in uh, verses 16 and 17 there, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Right, the flesh is an enemy that we ought to fight. But what then is the flesh? Well, sometimes... Uh, when the Bible refers to flesh, it, it does talk about the physical body. But more often, whenever the Bible is speaking of flesh, it's referring to the broken and sinful inclinations of our human nature. Right? The flesh is the desire to possess, um, that we possess, to act in ways that are contrary to God's desire for us personally. There's a battle between the flesh and the spirit us wanting to satisfy our desires, even if that means disobeying what God desires for us. And so for the Christian, we are given this new life in the spirit. And so there's a battle that's constantly going on between the flesh and um, that which God desires in us. 
There's a constant battle for us to move away from that which does not align with the new life that's been given. And to give us some examples of this distinction between the flesh and the new life, Paul gives us this list of examples of what it means to live in the flesh. In verse 19 and 20, or through 21, let me just read this for us again. He said, the acts of the flesh are obvious. I think it's interesting that he uses that word. They're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what is all of that? Well, as I said, for the Christian, we've been given new life. And what he's saying is that these acts of the flesh are not in line with the new life that's been given. What he's saying is that if you, uh, those who have not experienced this new life, that there's not going to be any kind of resistance to things like sexual immorality or impurity or debauchery. Instead, all sexual appetite is going to be natural. It's going to be acceptable. And so according to the flesh, to walk according to the flesh is to pursue sexual pleasure and experiences, even if they misalign with God's intention for sex. He speaks of idolatry and witchcraft, which is a willingness and a desire to seek fulfillment and purpose and security in anything other than God himself, who is the only one with true and ultimate power, the only source of true power. Paul speaks of hatred and discord and jealousy and fits of rage and selfish ambition and dissension and factions and envy, which is the allowance for relational strife and relational breakdown. And then he ends with drunkenness and orgies, which is just a complete lack of self-control. And instead of controlling oneself, it's just inhibition and indecency and decadence. I mean, this list is in direct opposition of what will later be described as the fruit of the Spirit. These are fruits of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit, though, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. The works of the flesh are immorality, relational discord, idolatry, and a lack of self-control. And the spiritual battle taking place is related to which of those two things is going to win out. Now, we need to also address one key statement that Paul makes at the very end, which is a, it can feel like it can be concerning depending on where you might stand on this. But he says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, as we've said, there are two ways that we can live according to the spirit or according to the flesh. And to live according to the spirit, as as we just said a minute ago, is to have new life in Christ. And as a result, you recognize that there is this fallenness, there is this flesh that must be resisted. And you will spend your entire lives learning more and more what it means to resist things like sexual immorality and relational strife and idolatry and various indecencies. However, the battle itself, here's what I want us to see. The battle itself is actually proof that there is new life within us. I mean, Paul is saying, if you live this way with no battle, if there's no resistance to the flesh, that new life is likely just not present in you. Therefore, the kingdom of God is not yours uh, as an inheritance. But if you're battling the flesh, if you resist the flesh with a desire to obey, that's proof 
that new life exists. This is an important point, and I want to make sure that we understand it. The presence of desires that misalign with God's commands or purposes is common to all of humanity. All of us have desires that misalign with God's intention. But the work of the Spirit, a work in which we partner with him, is to empower us to resist those desires. That's the consequence of new life. And so to gauge where we are in relation to this new life and this desire to resist that which misaligns with God, an important gauge would just be when, when you hear, when we hear God's commands or we discover God's intentions for us, how do we respond? I mean, that makes all the difference in the world. I mean, just take Paul's list for example. It's not a comprehensive list, but it's very helpful. You know, when we hear God's commands and purposes concerning sex, do we think, nah, I'm good. I'll do my own thing on that front. You know, when we hear that we ought to pursue relational wholeness and not division, do we still end up factious and divisive, serving our own interests, unconcerned with others? When we hear that there is no other God and that we are obligated to worship him and him alone, do we think, "Mm, I will not bow my knee to some God. I will be the master of my own destiny. You know, when we hear that we ought to live moderate, self-controlled, decent lives, do we think, nah, I want to experience every pleasure that I can. It's my right to do so. I mean, this kind of attitude and rejection of God, that's what leaves one without an inheritance, without this inheritance of God's kingdom because it's a rejection of God. There's no battle being waged there. Instead, it's just a full submission to the flesh. But the life of the Christian, the mark of a growing Christian, is the realization that there are desires within me that misalign with God's commands and his good intentions for me. And as a result, I war against such desires by the power of the Spirit, the one who walks with me. That distinction is crucial and so important for us. But we also then must consider, finally, if that's true, if we are to war against the flesh, war against the patterns of this world by the power of the Spirit, By walking with the Spirit, what does that look like? What does that mean? How can I successfully battle against the flesh? By walking with the Spirit, let's consider that. In verse 16, Paul says that we are to walk by the Spirit. So what does he mean by that? Uh, It could potentially mean uh, a lot of different things, but consider what Paul uh, has said to us already. If you've been with us, uh, some of this will, will ring a bell. But essentially what Paul has said to us up until this point in Galatians 5, he's made the point previously that adherence to the law or works of righteousness uh, do not justify us. They don't do any, they're really of no great value in regards to our justification. Good deeds, righteous living, obedience, and other pursuits of justification will not suffice when we stand before God. However, he now makes the case in our passage that a lack of good deeds or a lack of righteous living or a lack of obedience will not suffice either. For as he said, such things are works of the flesh, and those who live according to the flesh will not inherit inherit the kingdom of God. This is important. Up until this point, Paul has said, listen, your good deeds and your righteous living and your obedience 
It's not going to contribute anything to your salvation. But now he's saying that a lack of good deeds and a lack of righteous living and a lack of obedience means that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So which is it? Well, some of us are going to err on the side of assuming that righteousness and obedience, that it merits too much. We put too much stock in our good deeds. However, others are going to err on the side of assuming that righteousness and obedience have no bearing on our lives. But to walk with the Spirit is instead to go a completely different path. See, to walk with the Spirit is to not trust your own righteousness while at the same time not rejecting the necessity of righteousness. To walk in the Spirit is to know that Jesus alone is your true righteousness while at the same time remembering that he is making you righteous. Walking with the Spirit is to know that the Spirit is making us more like Jesus. That is the Holy Spirit's work to do. But at the same time, knowing that we must align ourselves with the work of the Spirit in us, and as a result, strive to be more like Jesus. It's knowing that there is a spiritual battle being waged, a battle that Jesus has already won, while at the same time knowing that until Jesus returns and permanently crushes all sin and wickedness, we must fight to live in response to the battle that he's already won for us. See, Jesus is the one who frees us from the patterns of this world and the ongoing bondage of the flesh because he is our victorious king. He has accomplished something for us. It is done. It is finished. But we will spend a lifetime living in response to, living into that which he has accomplished for us, this great victory. You know, there's, uh, there's a lot of different perspectives on what actually took place uh, when Jesus went to the cross. And I won't get into all of them, but, you know, we talk about things like Jesus taking the penalty of our sin, which he did on the cross. We talk about the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus instead of us, which it was. But an aspect of the cross not considered enough in our church tradition is something that's called Christus Victor. Christus Victor is this emphasis that Christ is victorious over the world, and the flesh. You know, we talked about the patterns of this fallen world that we must resist. Well, Jesus in John 16 tells us that he has come to overcome the world. This means that we resist the fallen patterns of this world. When we do, we do not do so from a place of, of uh, defeat, but rather a place of victory. Christ is victor. Christ is victor um, is that, we, that he has triumphed not only over the world, but also the desires of the flesh, and that he liberates us from that bondage. In Galatians 5, later on in verse 24, which we have there in your passage, we're told that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does that mean? It means that on the cross, Jesus takes those desires of the flesh that you still have within you. And as his people, for those that put their faith and their hope and their trust in him, you are crucified with him. That flesh is crucified with him on the cross. And then in his resurrection, Romans 6 tells us that we are unified to him in new life. Galatians 2 tells us that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to have all of this victory given to you. Jesus is our great liberator. And by faith in Jesus, the flesh 
has been crucified and has been defeated. The world has been overcome. And as a result, that's who we are. We are victors with Christ as we trust in him. That means that we can resist the flesh, we can resist the patterns of this world, that we can walk with the spirit and we can do so from a place of victory because of what Jesus has done. Now, growth, spiritual growth, Christian growth, requires a recognition of this spiritual battle that's taking place against the patterns of the world, the fallenness of the systems and structures of this world, against the flesh, this, these desires that misalign with God's desires for us. And so I ask you this question, Christian in particular, what patterns of this world do you find yourself constantly allured by? What patterns need to be addressed as being that which needs to be warred against? What works of the flesh tempt you? What works of the flesh still seem to be pulling you away from what God has purposed for you, his intention for you? And do you see it as a spiritual battle? A spiritual battle that is of such great significance that it took the death of the Son of God to overcome it. And as a result, are you trusting in his work? Or do you find yourself still trusting in your own? How are you walking with the Spirit? How are you trusting the work of Jesus that makes that Spirit alive within you in order that you might live in victory? I pray that we all remember what Jesus has accomplished, Christus Victor, our victorious King, and remember that his Spirit is at work in us to help us resist the patterns of this world, the desires of the flesh, and may that be the foundations for all growth that we experience going forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who sees us in captivity. Your word makes clear that we are bound by sin, that all creation is bound by sin. And so, God, we, we thank you that you see us, but that you did not leave us in that state but rather you send your son, Jesus, our victorious king, the one who comes to overcome the world, the one who crushes the desires of the flesh that pull us away from your good design in order that we might then experience the power of the spirit living within us, unifying us to our savior, giving us the power to walk in obedience, giving us the power to resist that which is unpleasing to you. God, help us to see the spiritual battle that's taking place, a battle that we must rely on the work of your spirit to fight for us. Remind us of the victory that we already have in Christ. And may our obedience be an opportunity to love you, to serve you with great joy. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.